Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. The new documentary, Invisible Portraits, starts from a place of deep pain. The portraits are of Black women in America. The documentary overturns centuries of hateful stereotypes and introduces us to a group of extraordinary modern Black women. Our guest on this edition of the Carlos Watson Show podcast is director and producer Ogi Abuno. Ogie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, where are you sheltering in place? Where are you staying safe? I am in L.A. Where are you sheltering in place? I am kind of sheltering in place in the Bay Area, so I am uh, I'm somewhat safe up here. I hope all the way safe, but uh, but you never know. You never know. Are you? Uh, but you're not an Angelino, are you? You didn't grow up in L.A.? No, born and raised in Houston, Texas. Okay, and I don't hear any of that Houston accent. Did you uh, You let it go over time, or what happened to it? No, I actually never really had it. Um, but it does come out every now and again. Um, people tell me that as I'm speaking to them sometimes, they may just hear like a, a y'all or something like that. But I never really had the Southern accent. I wish I did, though. You know, there is something about Houston. I know it's the fourth largest city or whatever it is right now, but Houston is just making so many interesting people these days. Like, I I feel like whether we're talking about political figures, whether we're talking about singers, filmmakers, basketball players, there's something going on in Houston. Was it like that when you were coming up? Was Houston as uh, dynamic and active and filled with talented people? Yeah, I think it, I think when I was growing up, it was very much so still filled with that. But I think that we were in our gestation phase. And so now we're actually in full bloom. So you got the Megan Thee Stallions, you got the Travis Scott, you got the Ogies. Um, and it's our time now. So, you know, it's pretty, pretty exciting. I love that you didn't even put Queen Bay in there, but I love that uh, that, that she had looked- She was iconic while we were in our gestation phase. Like she was someone that we all looked up to. So like, I mean, when you hear Houston, you automatically think of her. So I felt like that was a given. Interesting. And then, so how did you leave Houston? What uh, what took you out of uh, what took you out of uh, Texas? Um, at the time, it was work. Um, I was working for a retail company that I had been with with for about four years, 
and they wanted to move me to a different location and I got them to move me to LA. Um, and I moved to LA and I was with the company for about six months out in LA. And then I eventually quit um, because I did fully realize at the time that my values were no longer, oh, not even no longer, my values were not in alignment with this company. Um, and so it became very apparent living here in LA, the morals and the values of this particular company. And so at the young tender age of 27, <laughs> I decided to quit. And, and you, you quit like righteously, you quit with like uh, scared out of your mind, like you quit, like, how did you quit? I think it was a mixture of all of it. It was a mixture of me knowing that I couldn't continue to do life, um, not standing in my truth and living in my truth. And so that's what propelled me to quit. And so when I quit, I was absolutely terrified. I'm 27. I'm in a new state. I really have no friends, no family here. I didn't know anyone. Um, and it was actually quite challenging for me. Um, I went through um, a mild phase of depression at the time, about three months of depression, because I just couldn't realize like what was going to come out of this. Um, and at the time, I I just was so confused and just I felt kind of lost. Um, but a friend introduced me to yoga. I had never heard of it at the time. And I went to a yoga class and the first yoga class I went to, I absolutely hated it. <laughs> I was like, this is not for me. This is very mechanical, not into it. Um, and then about two weeks later, another friend was like, come with me to yoga. And I was like, what is up with everyone wanting to do yoga out here? Like, no, I'm not into it. And she was like, but this yoga is so different. You'll love it. And I was like, okay, fine, I'll try it. And it was restorative yoga and I fell in love with it. Um, and that's what started the next chapter of my life. And why, what was it about restorative yoga that, that, that won you over? It reminded me that I had the power to heal myself, which is what I had been looking for um, and which was, was a reminder that I needed to be reminded of. Um, and in that particular session, the teacher at the time let us do such a powerful sequence um, that it allowed me to tap back into who I was through breath work um, and through restorative poses. And I walked out of that class not the same person that I walked into the class being. Wow, as, as someone who has felt a little bit of what I think you felt, especially when you didn't expect it, when you walked in that class not knowing, but feeling heavy and, and feeling stressed, and to finally feel like there's a, a window opened up. Uh, I can, you know, I wasn't with you in that moment, but I could, I, I can assume what it felt like when you, when you walked out. What, what came next? How did you, how did you keep breathing in that fresh air? I became addictive to restorative yoga. So I just started taking restorative yoga multiple times a week um, for about three months. And then I realized that like, this is something that I wanted to teach. I wanted to teach people how to heal themselves, um, particularly um, marginalized folks. Um, and so I decided to get certified as a restorative yoga teacher. So I went through training for about a year um, of meditation work, of breath work, of learning restorative yoga poses, um, learning the difference between the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. Just really educating myself on the various modalities regarding healing. And I started teaching restorative yoga throughout LA. And what did the healed you look like? How was she different? Once once you started to heal yourself, and I'm sure it didn't happen in one session, I'm sure it was a process, maybe an ongoing process, but like what, what was true about the healed you that wasn't true about the you who was, who was challenged and who needed something? 
Well, I think the difference, the biggest difference is that I realized that I hold the power to heal myself versus prior to being introduced to restorative yoga, I was always looking for outside sources to help heal me um, and to also discover who I was. Um, but restorative yoga for me laid down the foundation that everything that I was looking for was already within me. And so that is the biggest difference between Ogi then versus Ogi now. And it also just taught me that healing isn't linear, right? Like I think that um, prior to me understanding restorative yoga and various healing modalities, I thought that there was like a destination towards healing and that like I'll hit this moment and I'll be healed forever. Um, but what, you know, what yoga has taught me, what breath work has taught me is that healing isn't linear, right? It's cyclical. Um, we go through these moments of highs and lows, but I think the most important part is like when you're in these lows, how quickly can you notice it and get back into the flow of life? And, and Ogi, you were healing yourself from what? I don't want to make assumptions. What, what were you, what were you healing from? Um, I was healing from so much, from childhood trauma, um, from emotional abuse and physical abuse in a relationship that I had been into prior. Um, so, you know, I, I grew up very much so with my mother not really being present um, because she had to work multiple jobs, because she um, loved my father, who was very, very abusive physically, mentally, and emotionally towards her for four years. And so, you know, she had to teach herself English. She had to find a way to work multiple jobs, support me and my brother, and then later my cousin, who she adopted. Um, and so in the midst of her doing all those things, it didn't really allow her to be present for me in the way that I needed. Um, and so a lot of resentment grew from that, right? And also a lot of shrinking myself grew from that. Um, but then also this idea that I felt that I had to be perfect in order to be seen. So healing from that, um, and then also just healing from an abusive relationship that I had been in for four and a half years, um, where, you know, I shrunk, I shrunk myself so much that I allowed myself to stay in a relationship where I wasn't respected, um, where I wasn't treated with kindness and care. Um, so just doing a lot of healing work from that and just rediscovering who I was as an individual. And Ogi, why, why do you think, and again, I'm asking, even though I could guess, but I'm asking because I'd like to hear your truth and hear you share it. Why, why do you think you stayed in that relationship where you weren't loved in the way that you should have been, that you weren't respected in the way that you should have been? Well, I didn't think I was worthy of anything else, right? Like I hadn't seen um, any respectable relationships in my entire life at that point. Um, I didn't know what love and care and kindness looked like. And so with that being my first relationship, um, I just felt like this is what you do, right? Like this is what you do. Like you stick it out because you love the person and you hope that they change. Um, and so it was the irony in it all was that I remember at the age of 15, my mother starts to tell us stories about why um, she left my father. Um, and I remember sitting there thinking like, oh, like, how did you stay for four years? Like, I would never stay with a guy that beats me or like, I'll never stay with a person that doesn't respect me and love me. Um, and then I literally found myself in the same exact situation. Um, and for a while, like I said, I stayed in it because I didn't understand my worth. I didn't know my worth. Um, but then also too, when I finally left the relationship, I felt so much shame and so much guilt. Um, and I was really, really hard on myself. So I was also healing from that aspect of it. Were there people along the way who helped you in your healing? I mean, I assume that yoga was a part of it, but may not have been the only thing 
that that has been an important part of your healing journey? Were there people, other people who were part or other things that were a part of, uh, of this new chapter of life? Yeah, um, you know, I started to like cultivate friendships because for so long I kept myself isolated as a way of protection. Um, so I started to cultivate relationships and friendships with people that actually supported me and actually saw me for me, um, who didn't expect me to be perfect in order to receive love. Um, also therapy helped me a lot. Um, I'm still in it. It's one of my saving graces. Um, it's one of the tools that I use to continue to do life. Um, so there were so many various healing modalities outside of like forming and cultivating friendships that allowed me to heal in a way that felt authentic to me. Was your first therapist the right therapist? I know for a lot of us, the first isn't exactly the one. And for some people who don't come from a background or a family that does therapy, if the first one's not the right one, they can get turned off to it altogether. Was your, did you get lucky? Was your first therapist the right therapist? Absolutely not. My first therapist was awful. <laughs> um, I mean, I, 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 I've been through a couple of therapists, you know, and like also too, like coming from um, a Nigerian um, household, um, therapy is not looked upon as a positive thing. My mother had a very hard time coping with the fact that I was in therapy. Even now today, she still has a very hard time um, handling that truth. Um, and so it was, you know, it was challenging um, to really continue to try to heal myself in that modality. Um, I've been through probably six therapists um, to find the one that I have now, who I think is the perfect fit for me right now. And I think, you know, like, a few of them were just absolutely wrong, but then a few of them also like took me to the limit that they could take me. And I realized that I needed someone else to further my journey of healing, which is okay, right? Um, but you know, the person that I have now is absolutely incredible. Um, they see me for who I am and they offer me tools that I need in this moment. Um, so I'm deeply, deeply grateful for their guidance. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. 
We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So... How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. How did a 27-year-old in L.A., I mean, you know this is starting to sound like episode Insecure. You know, how did a 27-year-old in L.A. who's quitting her job, (laughs) trying out yoga and, you know, meet new friends and beginning a journey? Like, how does she go from that woman to filmmaker? Like, how did that happen? Was that something that had always been in the back of your mind or even in your heart? Was that something new? Where, Where did that come from? No, that was totally something that found me. Um, I mean, my life is pretty unconventional um, in all regards. Um, The way that I got introduced to filmmaking um, was through yoga. Um, For me, I always knew that I would make an impact in society, but I thought it would be through, at one point, being a doctor, because I went to this high school called Michael E. DeBakey High School for Health Profession, because at the time, growing up, um, especially in the Nigerian community and household, like you're pushed to either be a doctor or a lawyer. That is seen as the only ways of being successful. So for me, I chose the route of being a doctor and being in that in that realm. And then I realized that like that wasn't me. Like it wasn't a fit for me. Um, and so I for a while was just trying to figure that out, working retail jobs and things of that nature. Then I went into yoga. And I was like, oh, this is it. Like, this is how I'm gonna make my mark in the world. I'm gonna help heal people and I'm gonna help them realize that they can heal themselves. And as I was teaching yoga, um, I was introduced to this private gym um, who introduced me to a private client. And I did a private session for this client. And after the session, he was like, I, I want to do um, private practices with you. Like, are, do you have any time available? And at the time, I was quite booked with as far as like my teaching schedule. Um, and then a student, a client went on vacation for a while. So I was like, you can come in and take this place for a minute. They'll be gone for a few months so then I can take you in. And so I started doing private clients with this guy and I remember it was probably like a month into it um, after a session because after every session with my yoga clients I would sit down with them we'll talk about the sessions and then I would ask them like the various things that worked and what didn't work but also to teach them how to do this without me so they understand that they don't need me in this practice Um, and one day Jed looked at me and said have you ever thought about working in film and music and I was like god no 
like not even interested, don't own a TV, not for me. And he was like, huh, okay. So then I saw him again. And for like a few times after every session, he would just ask me like, what kind of music do you like? Like, I, I really feel like you should be in film and music. And then like probably like two months into it, I was like, okay, what is your last name? What do you even do? And like, like what, like, what are you trying to do here? And, you know, Jed looked at me and said, my name is Jed Doherty. Um, I used to be the CEO um, and chairman of Sony Music in the UK. And now I own a production company with my business partner, Colin Firth. And I don't know what it is, but I tend to follow my intuition. And something keeps telling me that I should bring you on as an understudy and just teach you everything I know. And he was like, you know, I don't know much because I'm just starting off in film um, as a producer. Colin used to be an actor, well, still is an actor, but he's now wanting to venture off in producing. So we'll all be learning as we go. And I remember thinking like, nah, like I, I, I can't, I didn't even know who Colin was. I was like, I don't even know who Colin Firth is. So he was like, watch King's Speech. And when I see you again, we'll talk. And I was like, okay. So then I saw him again. He was like, have you thought about it? And what'd you think about the movie? I was like, oh, great movie incredible actor, but I just don't think this film thing is for me. I know nothing about it. And he was like, okay, just sit with it. So then I went home and I was talking to my mom and my friend and my mom just said, think about it, like meditate on it, pray on it, give it some moment. And if you want to try it, and if you don't like it, quit in three months. And so I meditate on it. And then I saw Jed again a few days later and he was like, so, and I was like, okay, listen, here's the deal. I'll do it for three months. And if I don't like it, I'll quit. And he was like, deal. And I ended up being with Rain Dog for almost four years after that. Enjoyed it the whole time or most of the time? Most of the time. It was it, <laughs> it was challenging because I had to, I ended up moving um, to London. I was supposed to go to London for two weeks to meet the team. And I ended up being there for about four months and then immediately went to South Africa because we got our first film greenlit, Eye in the Sky, and moved to South Africa for about four months um, and like went in straight into learning about filmmaking and production. Um, and then right after leaving South Africa, coming back to London for post and then immediately getting loving greenlit and then moving to Richmond, Virginia for three months. And so it was this constant, I was traveling quite a bit and it was a lot of travel and a lot of just like steep learning. Um, so there was moments where it was quite enjoyable, but then there was also moments where it was quite difficult. And what were you doing, Oki, for these films? What were you doing on the films? Everything from creative development, like when we were like doing creative notes on it to um, associate producing to helping to produce our films. And so for people who have no idea what any of that means because they've never been near Hollywood, that means what? Um, being a part of a producing team basically is making sure that you manage the production. So you do everything from making sure the script is where it needs to be at the very beginning, before and after it gets greenlit, to hiring the cast. So going to casting calls, um, watching casting videos, um, working on the budget of the film, making sure that you meet the budget and it doesn't exceed the limit that was agreed upon. Um, also being on the set of production and making sure that everything goes to schedule in accordance with the production team. Um, it also means that after you finish um, the production of the film going into post and managing the post schedule. So making sure that the director and the editor are in alignment with everything that needs to be done and overseeing that entire project. Um, and then, you know, after the post-production, going into the marketing of the film. So meeting with the studios and the marketing teams to figure out like what that strategy is um, and also figuring out what the strategy for, for publicity would be for the film. So it's quite um, encompassing 
Um, there's a lot in that in that role. But so now, how do you go from Rain Dog to producing your own film? So I left Rain Dog after about four years of being with them, and I moved back to LA. Um, and I was actually going through, I tend to go through bouts of depression whenever I'm about to have a huge life change. <laughs> um, and I was going through a bout of depression, I was experiencing it, and I was just questioning, did I, write, did I make the right move by leaving? Like, what is, like, what am I gonna do next? Like, what's happening? And a woman that I had met a few months prior at a charity event um, sent me a text randomly and said, um, really random, at lunch with a friend, he has this idea about a movie. I thought about you. Can you meet with him tomorrow before he flies to New York? And I was like, okay. So I go to the peninsula and I meet with this guy. I walk into a meeting, middle-aged white guy, and we do the formals, introductions. And then he starts to tell me this idea he has about a film or a documentary or a TV show that he wants to create. And in the midst of hearing it, um, that's how it came about me having the opportunity to have my directorial debut. Whoa, 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 whoa. You talking about everybody's dream here, so you can't skip over it and like, one minute I'm sitting down in the peninsula, the next minute I've got an award-winning film. Like, like literally, I mean, was it that magical? Like, did it literally happen over drinks or, or, or what was the deal? Like, how did you, how did you bring that alive? Yeah, it literally happened over breakfast. Um, I walked into the meeting and Michael Meyer, who is the executive producer and financier of the film, told me that he had watched this YouTube clip of Isaiah Thomas being inducted into the Hall of Fame. And he was so moved by his story of how his mother sacrificed so much for him to be where he's at today. And so it inspired him to want to create something that celebrate Black mothers because he felt that Black mothers weren't celebrated in the way that they should be. And so my slight pushback was like, okay, that can be the only reason why you want to create this. Like what, like what else is your motivation behind this? What's your inspiration behind it? And Michael looked at me and was like, no, that's it. Like that is the motivation behind I want to make it. And I was like, okay, well, if I'm going to create anything, I would want to create something that celebrate black women and girls because we're that before we're mothers. And so Michael was like, okay, if you can go and create a pitch and if I like it, I'll fully fund it. But in my head, I'm still thinking, oh, he wants me to produce it because he's only known me and he knows my history as a producer, not a director. And so I go and I start to do a little bit of research and I create this pitch and then I meet up with him about a week later and I pitched the idea of what I wanted to create. And I was like, we can hire a director, we can hire a whole entire team, but this is the vision of what I want to do. And Michael looked at me and goes, well, I want you to make it. And I was like, what? And he was like, I, I want you to go and direct it. Like you, you created the vision, this is your pitch. I believe in you, I will fully fund it. I want you to go make it. And I remember initially being like, this guy has to be crazy. Like I can't, no, I can't do this. I was like, let me, let me think about it. And you know, I, I reached out to a few friends cause I was like, I don't think I can do this. Like, this is insane. Like I've never directed before. Not only have I never directed before, the subject matter was so huge that I didn't want to do a disservice to it. And, you know, my friends encouraged me. They were like, girl, what? Like, of course you can do this. Like, this is your calling. Like, you got this. We will fully support you in any way we can, but you're going to tell the story. And so I remember going back to Michael and being like, okay, I'll do it. And he was like, all right, how much do you need? I'll fully fund it. And that is how <laughs> it started. And, and why do you think he believed in you? Like, and I don't want you to be modest in this because I think other people can learn 
from your success and from your story here? Like, like, what do you think worked? Because you know how deeply so many people want something like this to happen, whether they're in the film industry or another industry and it doesn't happen. What do you think he saw? What do you think happened that allowed you to win him over? That's really hard for me to say. I think like he just saw that like I am an authentic person, right? And that if I commit myself to doing something, I'm going to do the best job I can possibly do. I think he very much so believed in the possibility of me um, and what I had to contribute to this subject matter. And I think that he, you know, he, he wanted to see this come to fruition, you know, and he felt that I was the right person to do that. And so, you know, he literally believed in me. I think that's the, that's the only thing I can really say because I'm not Michael. Like I, I haven't even, I've never asked him that question. So I don't know the answer to that. But all I can say is I think that he saw the possibility in me and he believed in that and wanted to invest in that. And that's really important. Uh, it's a hundred percent important. Now I understand that you had at least one famous friend who helped uh, uh, turn the tide and helped persuade you to, uh, uh, to grab this opportunity. Will you tell that story? Who was, who was that and who and, and what did she say that, that helped persuade you to go for this? That famous friend. I think you're talking about Halle Berry. <laughs> am, um, yeah, Halle is an incredible friend and mentor. And she was one of the first people that I went to when the opportunity presented itself to me. Um, and when I felt that I couldn't do it. And, you know, Halle just encouraged me. She was like, you can do this. Like, this is your time. Like, what better person to tell this story than you? And if you need me or just anybody on my team, you have our full support. But just know that you can do this. This is like you literally have worked so hard for this moment. And there's nobody else I can imagine doing this but you. So just know I'm here to support you. I got your back and I won't let you fail. You know, I can imagine it did. And it's, it's interesting. I was talking with a group of women who have been Democratic power brokers and they were among, they've managed campaigns, Donna Brazil and others. And they were saying that when they often took that next, next big step up, that it happened because they sometimes had friends who were like, there are white guys with a lot less talent who say yes and go for it. Like, why wouldn't you with all the preparation? Did, did any of that play a role in, uh, in you thinking this through and, and you realizing that you were ready for the moment? I mean, I think I take all of that into consideration, right? Um, I think especially being a Black woman, um, we tend to have to be three times as better as our peers in doing the things that we do. And so for me, not having the experience, um, particularly of a director, made me feel less than. Um, but it took the, you know, the support and the encouragement and the empowerment of my friends being like, that's just a technical skill. You have everything else that you need to fulfill this moment. And that technical skill, you can learn. You know, we'll help you figure it out. It took this notion of community, right? That it wasn't just me telling this story, that I had so many other incredible Black women surrounding me, uplifting me and supporting me in this moment that allowed me to be able to feel that I could tell this story. And so, you know, I'm deeply, deeply grateful for all of my friends um, who supported me throughout this journey. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't 
feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have a, one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. about the film for those who haven't seen it yet it's it's a gorgeous film do you mind giving people maybe uh, uh, a little bit of an overview of the film yeah so the film is called invisible portraits and the film is about the black woman's history in america and it's basically broken down in three sections per se um, which is hurt resilient and beautiful and the way that i went about um creating those as the lens to tell the story is that when I was doing the research phase of the film, um, I had a random idea to just reach out to every black man I know. I had my friends do it as well. So we reached out to every black man that we know and I said, just ask this question. If you can describe the black woman in three words, what would it be? And so we got back a hundred responses and I wrote down every single response on this big white sheet of paper. And so if I got angry, 15 times, I wrote it down 15 times. If I got beautiful 25 times, I wrote it down 25 times. And throughout the research phase of this project, which was about nine months, six days a week, 14 hour days, I remember just going back to this sheet being like, why did I even do this? Like, this makes no sense. Um, And then a month later, I'm looking at this sheet again, and these three words kept popping out to me, which was hurt, resilient, and beautiful. 
And so I was like, oh, let me try to tell the story of our experience through these three words. The beginning of the documentary, we start off with the hurt section. And it's about exploring hurt from a three-dimensional lens of Black women. So physical hurt, mental hurt, and emotional hurt. And so with the physical hurt, it's everything from a medical apartheid against Black women's bodies to um, rape culture on Black women's bodies. And then we go into the mental aspect of the hurt. Um, the mental hurt, um, which is the labeling of Black women. So everything from the welfare queen to the mammy to the angry Black woman. Um, and then we go into the emotional aspect of the hurt. So once you've been physically hurt in this manner and you've been mentally hurt, like how do you then begin to see yourself as a Black woman? How do you then begin to relate to other Black women and society as a whole? Um, and then we go into the resiliency section and how resiliency could be used as a double-edged sword, depending on who's wielding that label, right? So it could be, you're so resilient, we don't care how we treat you, but it could also be, I have no choice but to persevere and be resilient. So we explore the two um, lenses of that, of that particular word. And then we also go into how faith has played a role in the resiliency of Black women throughout centuries in this country. And then we end the documentary on the beauty aspect of Black women, the physical beauty of Black women, and then just also all the beautiful contributions that Black women have made and continue to make to our society. So everything from the arts to the culture, to poetry, to literature, um, we just celebrate the resiliency and the beauty of Black women and girls. Ogie, what stays with you now that you had this opportunity? Because it's a rare opportunity in life to get to study and learn and create and probably talk to all the people you did, to view all the footage you did. If you were to think about the one or two most interesting things that you took away from this or most impactful things, maybe for you, what stands out? What did you take away from doing this film? Um, I mean, I took away so much. Um, I took away, the first thing is that I took away is that what we're taught in schools is very much so revisionist history. That was one of my biggest takeaways, um, which is so unfortunate. And then the second takeaway, um, I would say, was just be, it's just the, the beauty and the resilience of Black women. Like, I've always known it, but this, this basically planted it in such a way that I could never, ever forget it. And so that's why I tend to say that this film, first and foremost, serves as a love letter to Black women. It's basically me saying, I see you, I hear you, and you matter. And then secondly, it serves as a re-education to everyone else. Um, and so, you know, I there were so many beautiful moments from learning about the history and the origin of Amazing Grace. Like, I could never sing that song again in my entire life after now knowing what I know. So, I mean, there was just so many incredible and inspiring and empowering moments throughout this entire journey that has left me rearranged, I guess is the best way to put it. What a spectacular word, Oji. That is really interesting. Left me rearranged. That, that's, that's a stunning and spectacular word. That's really interesting. That's really, uh, Ogi, where do you go next? Where will the rearranged Ogi go from here? Um, she will continue to be a storyteller. I think that there's so many ways and so many stories that I want to continue to tell. I think filmmaking is definitely one of the mediums that I use to tell stories, but there's so many more. I'm going to get back into wellness and figuring out ways to incorporate that into um, the way that I tell stories, but definitely still creating films um, and being a filmmaker. Um, but, you know, the sky's the limit. I love it. And believe it. Ogie, talk to me a little bit about change, because one of the things that we talk a lot about on the show is that for many of us, change happens to us. 
And the question is, how do we become a change agent? How can we become proactive in setting about our destiny? What do you tell to other people who come to you who are seeking advice, who are trying to go from becoming someone who change happens to, to someone who actually is a change agent? I think it's just about remembering the power that you hold. I think that, you know, we're, we're conditioned to think that the power lies outside of us versus whether it being within us. And so for me, I always remind myself and I tell others that our most powerful currency isn't money. Um, it isn't materialistic things. It's our mental state, which is why I think it's so important that we talk about mental health and well-being and wellness, because our mental state is our most powerful currency. It's where everything happens first. Right. So like we're able to communicate now through technology and through cameras because someone first imagined that in their minds. Right. The chairs that we're sitting in, the houses that we live in, the cars that we drive all initially started in someone's imagination. And so when you really understand that, when you understand the power of your imagination, anything is possible. Literally anything. I love that and believe that. Oh, yeah. I'm going to finish by doing a little bit of rapid fire. If you're OK, are you OK with a little bit of rapid fire questioning? Yeah, let's do it. What's your favorite book? My favorite book is, ooh, what is my favorite book? There's so many. Um, one of my favorite books is Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome by Dr. Joy DeGruy. Interesting, okay. What's your favorite color? My favorite color is red. Because? I don't know, I just, I just love the way I look in red. The way that red looks against my dark melon, just, I mean, hey, it's a, it's a winner every time country you want to visit next? A country that I want to visit next. Next. Um, hmm. I feel like I've kind of been everywhere. Um, Thailand. Then I'm going to flip it the other way. What's your favorite country that you visited? Or what, what is one of your favorite countries that you visited? Bali and India. Oh, interesting. Not surprising for Ogi the Yogi. <laughs> Both of those places literally changed me in the most beautiful ways. Interesting. Was this during that, that period of you becoming a yogi or was this after you'd become a yogi? It was after I became a yogi. Bali was last year, November. India was two years ago. And how, how did they change you? Um, I mean, they changed me on a spiritual level. When I went to both places, I was able to just really go into solitude and isolation and spend my days reading, meditating and praying and doing breath work. Um, and so both of those moments allowed me to tap into not only my spiritual life, but just tap into myself on a deeper level that I wasn't able to when I'm here in the States. I can uh, I can see that. I, uh, I've been lucky enough to travel too, and I appreciate what you're saying. Uh, you should go to Goa if you haven't been to Goa yet in India. Um, uh, treat yourself to that uh, uh, when you get a chance. Oh, uh, last uh, question for you. Um, I assume you've met so many interesting people in your life, uh, but maybe there's still yet one more who you'd love to meet. If you could have another breakfast, another special lunch or dinner with someone alive or dead, who would you who would you love to spend time with? Only one person? I like you. I like you for you for you for you too. Everybody else one for you too. Um, for me too. Right now alive, it would be Michelle Obama and Angela Davis. 
Oh, interesting. You like tall women. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's good. Yeah. That's good. That's good. That's good. That's good. Tall women with big minds. That's uh, yes. uh those that's those are two really good choices. I, I love that. Um, Ogie, I hope this won't be the last time you visit the show. I hope you'll come back again. Yes, I will absolutely come back again. Thank you for having me. It was such an honor. Thank you. Not at all. It's totally my pleasure. And and good luck. I'm uh, I'm so excited about your film. I'm super curious about what you're going to do next. And I'm going to be using that word rearranged everywhere. I'm going to, uh, uh, I'm going to leave a coin in the tin when I do it. I'm going to give you credit, <laughs> um, digital credit. But uh, I really, it was very nice to meet you. Lovely to meet you as well, too. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Carlos Watson Show podcast. Please let your friends know they can find us on iTunes or the iHeartRadio podcast app. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 